Parts of the stories you're about to hear regarding drug use in this camp are completely false. Exactly which parts? You decide. Psychedelics may not be for everyone. Please don't try this at home. Hey, Shay? Hey, Ian. Uh, you, you consider yourself to be like a pretty strident feminist, right? Uh, I'm worried already where this is going. <laughs> I have full faith that you could tell me the only country in the world that was named after a woman. Virginia's not a country. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> I will give you three guesses. Uh, I just feel with my limited knowledge that it's probably a Spanish-speaking country. Okay. Uh, All right. This is going to take a long time, <laughs> so just buckle up. This is hard on more than one front. I'm still thinking about countries I know. Uh, do I get a hint? Do you get a hint? I mean, you haven't even made a guess yet. I feel like you should make a guess and get it wrong before you get a hint. I just don't have any confidence that I don't, I don't think I found a single one that could even be. <laughs> I'm like, New Zealand's definitely not named after a <laughs> Like, United Kingdom's not named after a woman. <laughs> Those are two guesses. All no, right, you have that. one more. No, <laughs> All right, I'm going to say um, uh, Cambodia. I, um, what? Yep. No. Okay, cool. Uh, it is, uh, all right, it, St. Lucia. St. Lucia is the only country in the world named after a woman. That was my first guess. Those other you ones, said, I said it's not. This is bullshit. You said Virginia. You said Virginia is not a country. I, which is not a guess. It's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's bullshit. Fuck this game. All right, let's start the show. <laughs> now that I've fooled Shay again, hello everyone and welcome to Camp Re-Education, an immersive boot camp into the world we thought we knew. We are your hosts, Ian and Shay, ending our two-week immersion into the world of microdosing. Well, hello there, my sneaky little friend. How are you doing this wonderful day? So sneaky, so good, feeling fresh, feeling fly. I could go on, I won't. Let's get, let's do this. So as you are well aware, we have been microdosing for weeks and we are at the conclusion. We're looking back. We're seeing how our adventure has played out for us. We have fond memories. We have sad memories. Lots of laughs, <laughs> lots of tears. We're going to get into all of that today. We have interviews. We have other stuff. What else we got, Ian? Uh, thoughts? We've got some thoughts. We've got some thoughts. We've got some opinions, some informed, some not, but that's what we're here for, to pick out the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, the happy from the sad, the big from the small, the round from the square. Um, someone please stop me. Oh my God, please stop me. Please, God help me, please. Let's, uh, yes. Okay, now that Ian is finally done, uh, <laughs> as always, we will be diving into what we learned from our interviews since we last checked in with you all. And we actually have three amazing interviews for you today. We got an interview from a board-certified psychiatrist, a science writer from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and a hippie I went to high school with. You are certainly in luck. And then, uh, of course, for anyone who's familiar with the show, at the end of our uh, two-week immersions, four weeks, in the case of this camp, um, Shay and I wrap up with our big smart boy questions. Shay's, of course, being whether or not microdosing was 
in effect, a placebo. And then, of course, my very manageable, not at all impossible question of can microdosing help people have transcendental experiences and help with self-actualization because I'm a fucking idiot? Yeah, that was a really nice question you asked yourself, Ian. I'm sure you had a great time answering such a simple question. <laughs> yeah, I didn't cry at all during these three weeks, four weeks, as, as I uh, tried to come up to a resounding yes or no to the answer of fucking enlightenment. It was super easy. That's yes. So we're going to aim to answer those questions for you by the end of the episode. Um, but before we do, since last time, Shay, what's changed? What's stayed the same? So um, I think last time we spoke, we talked about this arc that we had had in the first two weeks from really being excited about it to kind of abouting face, having a relatively negative experience to then being a little bit more neutral about it. I think since then, it's gone a little bit more positive for me. I didn't experiment with any higher doses. I stayed pretty low and I had a couple good experiences. You and I spent a day editing one of our episodes and uh, during that day, I actually had a wonderful time microdosing. We were being super creative, super productive. I was in an excellent mood, wasn't drinking coffee, which I guess it seems to have a negative uh, interaction in my body. Um, and then uh, separate from that editing day, I had another day at work, which was uh, as well super productive and uh, left me feeling in a pretty good mood. Um, I guess other than that, uh, something that is probably worth noting is that my vial with my liquid LSD started growing mold in it. And I did not notice it until very late in this process. Uh, basically until our last day, I picked up the bottle and I held it up to light. And I realized that there was definitely some black hairy stuff floating around in there. You were like, oh, look, my LSD made friends. Made a lot of friends, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of uh, where I have been. Uh, Ian, how has the last two weeks been for you? I'm really on the fence. I'm super on the fence. And I'm, I'm also simultaneously really glad that I'm out of the woods, so to speak. But at the same time, like I, I also am already kind of going to miss what we've been doing because it has been super interesting. It's, it has been super wild and super adventurous. I think after like maybe our two week check in our last two week check in, I did experience like less anxiety. Like you, I cut back on my coffee intake on my dosing days. I do think it leveled out. And, and then I do think I, I saw some kind of weirdly enough, broadly, just more organization on my part. Like um, I was cleaning my house regularly. Like I think before I would spend time and just like space out and catch myself daydreaming a lot. But I mean, I, I saw a big boost in productivity. Like I was using my time more wisely. I was more organized. I wasn't putting as much pressure myself on tasks. Like I really kind of understood their magnitude um, and whether or not if something was important, um, I could get it done. No problem. I didn't need to stress out about it. And then a thousand little tasks isn't one daunting big task. It's just like little things that you can kind of knock out bit by bit. So I definitely do feel like I yielded some positive effects from this. You know, and again, I think this goes back to the type of different work that you and I both do. Uh, you do have yeah. work that requires a lot more physical output, whereas my job is basically a babysitter for people in a Zoom meeting. That difference really let, led to a difference in experiences for both of us. And I do think it's worth mentioning that we decided to send ourselves off from... Wait, wait. We didn't know. No, we did not decide. We, ac <laughs> we had an accident. Well, <laughs> you... this, and this is the, the only real accident because I'll always push back when Ian's like, oh, we accidentally took too much acid because that's always a fucking lie. But... Oh, we ac I accidentally started a podcast with this fucking crazy person. <laughs> but we actually did accidentally dose 
we try to do a midi dose uh, and then go to Michael's craft store to pick up some supplies for a future camp. And then I found myself in some corporate hellscape looking at Ian just staring at a rack full of different multicolored T-shirts, asking if one <laughs> shade of red would look better on him than another. I guess it hadn't hit him yet. And I was just there dying. Uh, Ian, how was that experience <laughs> for you? So our uh, marketing director was with us as well. She's, um, you know, not, not only does she help guide our, our wonderful program, but she also kind of partakes in some of our experiments with us so she, she can better promote them. And uh, pretty much right when we walked into the store, we were looking at, a, we were trying to find um, what material would best be used to draw a pentagram on the floor. There was a debate between salt and chalk. And uh, as, we were, as we were standing over like multicolored pens and pencils, I hear Stephanie go, uh-oh. And uh, I went, oh, there's no, don't worry, we'll figure it out. And I didn't know that she was referring to um, the macro dose of LSD kicking in and not the fact that I couldn't figure out how to draw on my floor. Right. Which was truly, truly a hellish place for me to be in because very shortly after, or maybe simultaneously with Stephanie's realization that things were not quite what we were expecting them to be. We, uh, I forgot how I started that sentence, so I'm just going to start a new sentence. So it was a really fun time, uh, ultimately, and we got the fuck out of there and uh, basically spent the rest of the day laying in bed listening to music while Ian danced circles and bounced off the walls for the next uh, 10 to 12 hours. <laughs> I think I went on like, a, like maybe three or four walks that day. I was, I was full of energy. And I didn't, I didn't realize that you guys were experiencing like, a, I, I, I didn't realize we had accidentally taken a full-fledged dose until we pretty much rounded the corner and started walking back to my house. Right. And um, the, the trees were just coming alive for me. And I was like, oh, oh, shit, this was this was not a mini dose. But it was a perfect it was the perfect ending to this. It was the absolute perfect ending to this. I'm I'm glad it's done. Um, I'm ready to move on to the next chapter. I'm ready to experience different things. I, I feel like I've been living in a foreign country a little bit. It's just like that experience when like you you, you move to a, a new state or maybe you vacation in a different city and like everything is just a little bit off. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So that was that's, a, that's pretty much been life for the past month. That was that. But our experiences aside, I think for me, the best and Shay, I don't know if you feel the same way. For me, the best part of this camp wasn't the fact that we were mildly tripping balls for a month. It was that we got to talk to some really interesting people. I mean, throughout these interviews, we had wanted to get uh, answers to what I felt were like some pretty tough questions. And I think they did an amazing job answering them. We wanted to know about the likelihood that this was a placebo. We wanted to know what is the science of the transcendental experience? Yes, that's true, Ian. <laughs> we also wanted to know if uh, people generally have a pretty good understanding of what microdosing is or if there's some pretty big misconceptions. And we actually got quite a bit of insight so we had all these questions in addition to our overarching big smart boy questions, which were our guiding principles throughout this camp. First, we'll dive into what was effectively my big smart boy question this, this camp. And that's if microdosing is supposed to be something that's subperceptual, might this be a placebo? And, you know, my, my, my thinking around all of this has changed quite a bit through this experiment and i'm quite excited to to kind of share with you what we learned a little bit so first we'll just go ahead and dive into what dr alex had to say about all of that yeah i mean i think the placebo factor is 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 a very real thing and you could get some sort of clinical correlation 
and working with Absolute Budkiss. But the placebo effect compared to a microdose effect, is there something in there in, that's beyond our cognitive awareness? Yeah, I mean, I think that anything that you put in your body does something. So I, I think that it might not be making you hallucinate, but it might be modulating the systems in your, in your mind at the same time. I don't know why I was being so stubborn. I think I was being kind of stubborn about this. But the truth is, I didn't consider the fact that you can ha be having effects that are not necessarily at the forefront of your psychology from basically medicine, which is now the more I think about it, the, the, the stupider I feel about it. But Lyons, the researcher we talked to, also had some really interesting points on the matter. Two years ago, there was really, a, in my opinion, a groundbreaking study which discovered a not completely new, but almost completely new effect of psychedelics that many people have not heard about. All psychedelics that we know about, of course, they didn't check every substance because there are hundreds of psychedelic substances, <laughs> but they checked a, a wide variety of chemically very different substances, psilocybin, LSD, even ibogaine, and um, DOI, yeah, several others. They all induce neurons to produce more connections to other neurons, new synapses and new dendrites. And um, they found this effect, they even uh, gave the substance class kind of an extra new name for it, because how do you call substances that promote cells to create new connections to other uh, nerve cells? They call them neuroplastogens. And so all psychedelics that we know of, they are neuroplastogens. They actively increase the number of connections between nerve cells. And this effect might be also active in non-perceptual doses, right? The acute effect may, might not always be so strong that you could perfectly differentiate from placebo. Although, as I said, there are also studies who found effects stronger than placebo of microdoses. But even if everybody takes different doses, right? Even if somebody might take a dose that is actually really sub-perceptual. There might still be the neuroplastogenic effect which reconnects the brain. So there really seems to be some evidence supporting the idea that this might not be a placebo. So it's been an interesting revelation for me to think about the somewhat obvious fact that there can be things happening in my body, in my brain, that I don't have to necessarily be aware of consciously. And as I say this retrospectively, it seems really obvious. It's just so interesting to me how talking to these two people who have dedicated their lives to this, to like the studying the brain and studying the effects of chemicals on the brain, just just how cavalier we were being with this. The idea that we were gonna like use an extremely powerful psychoactive chemical and then almost like arrogantly dare ask like, you know, this is probably isn't gonna do anything to me. I think it just really goes to highlight like how cavalier we were being in the beginning. And I mean, how much my own opinion changed just even after talking to them for a few minutes and right. just realizing like, wow, like I am so out of my depth. We, we were playing with fire. Well, what's interesting too is I had actually read other articles talking about the likelihood of the placebo effect 
being a huge part of the reported effects of some of the microdosers. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from an article I read in uh, Wired magazine. The article references a placebo trial that had been done uh, within the last couple of years. And uh, this little excerpt is from uh, David. Uh, I'm definitely going to pronounce his last name wrong. It looks like Eritsoe. He's a neuro... I'm going to say this wrong too. A <laughs> neuropsychopharmacologist at the Imperial College of London. And uh, this is what he has to say. Microdosing may be particularly susceptible to placebo effect. This is because the placebo response is linked to expectations. If you think something is going to have an effect, then it is more likely to, even if it's just a sugar pill. Given that the drugs used in microdosing are illegal in many countries, people who decide to take them presumably wouldn't take the risk unless they really believe they will gain some benefit. And so that idea really led me to believe early on that there probably would be some amount of a placebo effect in these results. And I, I'm not 100% convinced that there is not any placebo effect active, um, even maybe in some of these controlled ones. Maybe that's a stupid thing to say. Um, but I do believe now that there is probably something beyond the placebo effect as well, considering what uh, Linus talked about regarding neuroplastogens. Didn't you also mention that, uh, you know, there were people even in response to that article, like, even if it's a placebo effect, I'm still going to take it, which seems wild to, to, to have read. Like, why? Right. Yeah. So that one subredditor wrote, uh, if it's a placebo and it works, why stop? Which is a pretty fair question, right? If, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. To me, that sort of claim feels like it's inviting criticism a little bit, like or judgment. What, what, what do you think? It almost feels, and maybe this is not a fair comparison, it almost feels like the same argument used for freedom of religion. If someone believes something and it's totally fucking crazy to you, but it makes them happy, does it really fucking matter if they believe it or not? And I think the same might be true for talking about a placebo. If, a, if, you, if you do something and you do some ritual ingestion of something that might not have an effect, but it does make you happy, th then is there really a reason to stop if it makes you happy? Because really, if it makes you happy, can it be that bad? And, you know, my answer to this and, and my kind of pushback on this is what is the harm involved? Uh, because we don't still necessarily know like if like the long term effects of, you know, microdosing has potentially harmful benefits. So it's like I, I think that this person might not necessarily be asking them enough questions. So beyond the absolute world rocking uh, placebo effect answers that we got from um, Linus, who, whose name I have like made it my life's work to be able to pronounce correctly with the German pronunciation, Linus. I had asked Linus and uh, Shane, I had asked Alex together during our interview whether or not it was cheating to take LSD to experience transcendence, which was relevant to my big smart boy question about can microdosing help you reach, uh, you know, self-actualization, so to speak. Is, is it a shortcut or is it cheating? Probably not because that's where your, your life story and that's where your, your dharma brought you, right? Like if you take or make a decision to take one of these substances, well then that's just, you know, that's just life and that's what your character was, was sort of promoted to do. 
So I, I actually really love this idea. Um, this idea that like uh, your life is somehow going to bring you to the decision about whether or not to take a psychoactive substance or to take a, to take a, um, a psychedelic drug. Like wh wh what did you think about that? I think it's relatively fair. I think it's a pretty pragmatic perspective. And I think we even got a similar answer from Linus, which we can play in a second. But I don't know. Is it cheating to take LSD to experience transcendence? You know, we also asked Alex what he thought about my claim that I had never experienced transcendence before. And he pushed back on that idea. Uh, and he had actually kind of an interesting idea about transcendence in general and described the experience of flow, which some of you may be familiar with, but it's this deeply satisfying mood or experience that happens when someone does something that requires a lot of attention and that they're also really good at. And uh, he described that experience as kind of a mini transcendence and in pushing back against my claim that I've never experienced it. So to experience a macro transcendence using LSD or really anything else feels, I, I guess, kind of similar. I don't know. It doesn't doesn't seem to break any rules for me. Nothing about that s seems to stand out. And in fact, the counter argument seems almost like a claim that would be made by some type of spiritual purist. And we, we actually do hear more about this later. But that, yeah, that's kind of how that's kind of where it leaves me feeling. How do you feel about the, uh, Alex's response? You know, I, I was kind of on board for most of it, but I'm still so suspect of the idea that flow itself is is like a form of transcendence. Like it's, I, I can't say I outright disagree with it, but I heard one example of a salmon, a salmon cut, salmon, sa uh, uh, of a fishman cutter who cuts fish so, <laughs> I'm sorry, a fishmonger who's like so good at cutting fish, he loses himself in the act of cutting fish. And I mean, for me, like, Transcendence was supposed to be, I don't think of transcendence as something related necessarily to a job or a task. And to me, it just seems like it's been recontextualized to fit into the mold of like a, a, a capitalist society where like you're supposed to produce. So I'm just, I don't know if I have an answer for what flow might look like outside of that context. D does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah. And I would push back in the sense that I don't think that flow or getting very skilled in one task is a product of capitalism. I would argue that probably our hunting and gathering ancestors probably got really good at other tasks that existed before the advent of capitalism. That could be hunting or running or swimming or dance or singing or something else. Like I think all of these things probably predate capitalism by a long time. In that sense, there may be more of a biological evolutionary basis for where that feeling of flow could come from. And in that sense, could be more transcendental. And that's and that's totally fair too. And you know, that, that answer does make me think that like Maslow had said that the, the purpose of the transcendental experience, or not maybe the purpose, but in effect, the feeling is the, the sense of like getting to go to heaven, but only for five minutes. Like uh, you, you only experience it for a short amount of time. And I mean, like, I guess that that makes sense in terms of if you're losing yourself briefly in the act of something that you've become very good at. So, uh, I mean, like I said, I'm wary of it. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with it, but I'm not agreeing with it either. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think you can reach transcendence from a psychedelic experience? That's a really great question. That's a really great question. Well, let me uh, answer that question with another question and maybe we can then answer it together. 
over this past month as we've been experimenting with psychedelics and our, our mental states and, and toying around with this idea of transcendence? Like, do you yourself feel like you've gotten anywhere close to it? Uh, no. And I will say that you're not answering my question with another question. You're skirting <laughs> my question <laughs> and therefore the responsibility to answer onto me, Ian. I once, you know, I don't know if if it has happened to me, but I swear to God, it happened to my ex-girlfriend's twin sister when we all did mushrooms together once at like 19 years old. And she spent the better part of 30 minutes screaming on the floor. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. I'm not going to name any names, but you know who you are. And I bet you're listening to this podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> so, Ian, is that your answer then that you believe that they can lead to transcendental experiences? I think if you put yourself in the mindset that that's what you're after and i think you're in the right place at the right time i think it can help you push you over that edge i do think that it can absolutely well linus also had some things to say on the connection between psychedelics and transcendence there is some debate with people who who deal with spirituality and transcendental topics. Like, here's one person and they worked their whole life uh, meditating, doing yoga, fasting, whatever, 20 years or so experience in all kinds of spiritual practice uh, until they have a full mystical experience, a full transcendation of space and time and self-identity and all these things. And then there's another guy, um, whatever, 16-year-old six, high school dude who takes uh, mushrooms on a party and suddenly he's, <laughs> he's struck by the actualization that he literally is the universe. Is this then cheating, right? Is the same, this one the same as the other? I would say in a specific sense it's not different, it's because the experience, the mystical experience is the same for everybody and it is um, this kind of enlightenment experience is nothing that you can in this way really strive towards too much. So he has a pretty practical response to it, I think, and that's, it's it seems like kind of a utilitarian, I, I think that's the right... Um, philosophy here where if the I'm not, I'm down. if the ends justify the means then who cares about the fucking means I think the big difference uh to him is that like the the former person more understands what to do with the transcendental experience and and I think maybe that's what I was missing during this whole thing is that like when one when you spend that much time striving toward it, it you're building up toward it, you, you're developing a sense of what to do when you get there um you've been preparing for what happens when you get to the top of the mountain as opposed to the person who suddenly finds himself there and doesn't really understand how to get down um which can lead to like a sense of um maybe like disassociativeness or disassociation or just like kind of being overwhelmed and you know what's interesting is Alex talked about this too. Um, on in his interview, when we talked about like uh, whether or not it was cheating to have these like transcendental experiences, whether or not to have these breakthroughs, he said that like the point of psychotherapy or psychology or psychiatry was to help manage breakthroughs. You weren't supposed to have all the breakthroughs at once. You were supposed to take them bit by bit. Um, so maybe while it's possible to have these transcendental experiences uh, with LSE as a shortcut, 
maybe it's just not as beneficial as it would be if you if you strived for it or or got there through hard work and and meditation. Right. So it's like if you and I just tried to run a marathon, maybe we could do it. Maybe we could get to the end of that 26th mile, <laughs> but our bodies would be fucking destroyed and we'd probably have some serious <laughs> muscle damage. Whereas if we'd been training for the last couple months or weeks or however long, we would probably be in much better shape after achieving that goal. I love that analogy. Like after, you know, after having trained, we could have gone to the bar, rewarded ourselves with a beer and said, wow, it feels so good to have done that. Whereas if we hadn't prepared at all, we would just be broken on the floor going, why did we do, what were we fucking thinking? I I like that a lot. So beyond what Alex and Linus had to say about this, we did talk to my hippie high school friend, uh, shout out to Brandon, who had a a really different perspective. um, And he actually ends up quoting or referencing the experience of Ram Das, who is a uh, an academic and a spiritual person who was very prominent in the first psychedelic revolution of the 60s and 70s. And uh, we'll just go ahead and play for you now what Brennan had to say about this. So do you think that the pursuit that uh, a psychonaut might be trying for would be better achieved by perhaps someone who dedicates their life to years of meditation or yoga or some other spiritual practice that avoids the use of psychedelics but maybe achieves similar spiritual uh, goals. I absolutely do believe that and there are really good examples of those two different lifestyles and moving from one to the other. Like Ram Das, if you ever hear anything from Ram Das, he started out that way using psychedelics. He was a he was a professor and started to get into psychedelics a little bit. Like Tim Leary got him into it. And he went to India and got a guru and was still sort of about the psychedelics and then slowly came to realize that that it was just you know it was it was a temporary window that just sort of self perpetuated its own need to to be even looking out the window but there's more than just the window there's a whole door that you can actually go outside and he achieved that through things like meditation Oh, was that it? (laughs) (laughs) I I almost want to keep that in there. Oh, is that it? Yes, Shay, that's it. But I think that uh, Brandon's point kind of uh, echoes what we were just talking about, about like the marathon and feeling kind of broken and beat down. And, and, And you know, I think going into this, I, I don't necessarily think I thought it was cheating. After hearing myself talk through it, I, I think I might kind of change my mind. I think maybe, yeah, it might it might be cheating because maybe, maybe I didn't necessarily have that over this past month or, or have had it previously in the past, but I'm not feeling the, the, the lasting effects of it, you know? Sure. And I, I guess to go back to the marathon uh, metaphor, you'll still have run the marathon if you did not prepare and completed it. So in the, in, the, in, the, in the example where we didn't train at all, we go and we destroy our bodies running a marathon. You don't take away the fact that we ran the marathon. You can still have that transcendental experience. It's just maybe the value 
is different and maybe it is a little bit more destructive and that's pretty much what brandon was saying and you know what beyond uh what what brandon had to say um after he pointed us to ram das i think ram das might have put it best and uh we want you guys to you know have a chance to hear what we heard too so here it is i don't think there is much doubt about it for you and me for many of us that at least psychedelic chemicals, not all drugs, but psychedelic chemicals, have a capacity to cut through places where you are attached and clinging, to set them aside and show you a possibility. The problem is that they don't allow you to become the possibility, they only show you the possibility. Then after a few hours, you lose the view of the possibility and you have it only as a memory. I made a very genuine effort in five years of drug taking to use that as my full upaya or way and it didn't work because I just kept going up and coming down. And Maharaji, my guru, when he took LSD, asked me for that medicine, that yogi medicine I used, and he swallowed a huge amount that would have freaked anybody in this room. <laughs> and nothing happened to him at all. And then he said, well, these are known about these chemicals. It will allow you to come in and have a visit with Christ, but you can only stay two hours and you're gonna leave. He said it would be better to become Christ than to visit Christ. But this medicine won't do that for you because it's not the true samadhi. Love is a much stronger medicine than this. Okay, so that was a clip from Ram Das in 1976 talking about this same question. So, it, which is actually already just fascinating to me that this has been a question that has existed so long. I feel like you and I dive into these questions, learning and exploring these things. And for for me, at least, it feels like uncharted territory. And I guess for my experience, it is. But so much of this has been so well documented and explored already. It's it just every time I see this and I realize, oh, my God, these questions have existed forever. I'm just now getting to it. It just illustrates how ignorant I really am. What's so fucking cool about this podcast is I have this moment now way more often than I ever used to where I, my own ignorance just crushes me <laughs> well, from, from, from its, from its own weight. And you know, I think to be a little bit more fair to you, I, I do believe that these questions kind of reinvent themselves with every new generation. So, I mean, you know, enlightenment in the seventies, probably means something different in 2020, you know, like self-actualization in the 50s probably looks a lot different than self-actualization in 2020, if it's even still a thing, still possible or even recognizable. You think so? You think you think monks from from 2000 years ago would are, would agree that enlightenment, it will be different for different generations? Well, I, I think monks is a special case because, I mean, most monks, at least in my experience and the monks that I've met, they do live very separated from society. They remove themselves from modernity. And I, I think that's a fair point is like they're not, you know, like a monk isn't working a nine to five, right? So it's like, that's more the orthodoxy. And then we're kind of left with the orthopraxy, right? Like we have to find a way to apply these principles to our everyday lives. Like uh, maybe... I don't know, enlightenment without the 
monastic life. I just think that probably in the times of Buddha, there was still a merchant class that was at the orthopraxy of that time. And I think every culture, maybe you're right that like the exact the exact essence of transcendence for that society may change, but I really think that transcendence would be a, a uniquely human, timeless experience. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I don't think so. Okay. I and I can't. And you know what? I can't. It's this is one of the things you're making an excellent point, and uh, I don't think I I don't have anything prepared right now to push back with. Um, so maybe I'll uh, have an answer for you later. But for right now, like I, I I'm gonna I don't know I don't know. Okay, well let's sit with that and let our listeners sit with that, and uh, we can hear more about everything we're gonna learn after the break. Why do we like Haley's Comet? Because it only comes once every 75 years. Why do we like four-leaf clovers, diamonds, and dads in therapy? Because they're rare. There's something beautiful about being unique, being different, being one of a kind. And the most rare thing of all? Being a monthly subscriber to the Camp Re-Education Patreon. Join the elite rank to which only one person belongs as of this recording and become the second Camp Re-Education patron today. Wow. I don't know about you guys, but I've already got my wallet out and I'm pretty much halfway to buying whatever the fuck that is. So beyond um, what I thought was a really cool question about, um, you know, transcendence and self-actualization and, and, and enlightenment and, and just... Um, all of the questions surrounding like what exactly we're supposed to be using LSD for that kind of led us to this other question of like, you know, what do we understand about LSD and, and microdosing? And then what are like the main misunderstandings of LSD and microdosing? Because for everything that people claim to think they know about it, there seems to be information that uh, goes against that belief. So Linus had a really uh, interesting point about this. So let's go ahead and hear what he has to say. I would say microdosing is surprisingly um, famous and surprisingly strongly in the spotlight at the moment. Many more people know about it than even five years ago. And uh, 10 years ago and earlier, I think almost nobody actually knew about it, just maybe a small core of hardcore psychedelic fans. So nowadays it's surprisingly popular. And that's very nice, very interesting, because I'm all for opening up this this topic for the public, but it's also um, in many cases framed not very correctly in my opinion because you know, for, for clickbait reasons, for selling your book reasons, things can be overstated, the effects, because I think the effects are maybe not as life-changing as sometimes proclaimed and also they could sometimes be more a nuisance on the day of dosing, stuff like this, like it could be negative effects as I mentioned before. Yeah, so I think the whole picture should be more in the spotlight for this. Right? So, Shay, I want to ask you a question right away. How much do you feel like you know or understand about LSD and microdosing even after this four-week immersion? I would say I feel pretty knowledgeable about it. If someone <laughs> came up to me and was like, teach me about microdosing, I think I'd have quite a bit to say about it now, especially. 
But it is absolutely true that there is still so much that I don't know that we don't know about this. And even just talking with Linus and with Alex and even uh, Brandon, there was still a lot about this, a lot of rocks, uh, <laughs> a lot of stones in this proverbial, what the fuck? We talked about this before, and I'm trying to remember exactly. The Fruvial Desert, this desert of, uh, yeah. of knowledge, we met- this, uh, <laughs> this this fucking quarry with all the rocks in yeah, it. Yeah, whatever that thing is. There's a lot of rocks left <laughs> that we got to turn over. We talked about this before. True fans will know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only true fans will understand. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so like Linus, for instance, pointed out that uh, there were some effects that seemed to be present from microdosing that only made themselves evident after about 10 weeks of microdosing and that's something that we've only been microdosing for four weeks like we would never experience or we will have not yet experienced that uh at this point and i guess going forward if we ever do want to continue microdosing like that's something we would have to put in the time to do i'm not sure if that's in the cards for me or for you but uh as of now i'm still only uh four weeks knowledgeable into microdosing myself how about you what what do you think your your knowledge starts and ends i i wouldn't tell i i don't think i could have anybody trust me i would be if they were to ask about it i would say i i can't tell you i don't know mm. um and then i would probably knowing me i would i would then proceed to tell them everything i knew about it just, just thus confusing the shit out of them uh, <laughs> in terms of like i thought you said you didn't know like oh just shut up and listen to all these things i know right um it's yeah it's it's not that i don't think i know it's that i don't know if i trust my experiences with it because they were just so uh, ephemeral so wildly fluctuating so often was i asking myself like the the day after like well how did i feel like it just it feels like a dream or it feels like a blur um you know am i being more productive because i'm like rationalizing the fact that i'm doing something you know maybe a little reckless maybe a little dangerous and i want to prove to myself that i'm responsible or is it a side effect of this powerful psychoactive substance i it's not that i don't know it's that i don't trust what i've come to know what would you need to be able to trust your own experience? Years of therapy. Okay. Well, maybe <laughs> you got time. You're still young, Ian. Come on. Um, you know, that's, that's a fair question. And maybe I don't want anybody to take my experience as, what's the word I'm looking for? Not condoning, but um, approving. Help me out here. No. <laughs> I don't want anybody to take my experience as like a uh, um, a reason to go do it, you know? So you wouldn't recommend microdosing is effectively what I'm hearing you say. I don't know. I, I'm i not sure. No. I, I For um, legality's sake, no. No, kids. Don't do drugs. Um, but uh, I mean, it's... The mind is such a fragile, delicate thing. And when Linus talks about like the negative effects, I think that those can't be you know, stated enough. Like we focus so much on how much fun it's supposed to be. But then I think that um, if you, you know, go on further to highlight the negatives, I, I think that you kind of get looked at as like a party pooper on what everyone's supposed to be kind of thinking about and looking at as like this good time. So I would be, uh, you know, I think I might fall into the Brandon camp where I said, like, you know, I don't know that I can condone anybody's partaking in this experience. Yeah, well, it is interesting that Linus mentioned, especially regarding the popularity of it, that it seemed that 
all of these news sources simultaneously came out talking about this trend that supposedly existed in the Silicon Valley. And even Brandon mentioned this uh, Silicon Valley trend. Uh, and, I, you know, we wanted to mention, at least I wanted to mention to him how that was basically a myth created by the media that Silicon Valley was really doing this. And actually, there was this quote from that Daily Beast article uh, I think I referenced in the last episode. Uh, and uh, I'll just go ahead and read this for you real quick. Fadiman jokingly compared the self-fulfilling effects of microdosing media coverage to the rise of Donald Trump, noting that he has received substantially more requests for microdosing information after the press had already declared it a trend. And I think that's just so fucking fascinating that <laughs> that it became a trend, obviously. And we talked about this last time, but the popularity of it and the 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 understanding of all these people really does come from this moment in our collective history where the media thought it was so cool that all these techies were fucking doing drugs and creating the next Google Making and iPhones, Facebook. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like maybe my uh, dissonance comes from like the sheer gap between my expectations um, and the reality of this experience. And, um, you know, uh, Alex said something that really kind of put things in perspective for me. Um, so I'd like to play that clip for you now. Right. So one of the most powerful things that in the U.S. we've been able to start working on psychedelics again was that if we sort of create a depressed rat, and this is what they did, they expose healthy rats to isolation, to loud noises and, and disturbing stimuli for an extended period of time, to the point where the rat starts behaving like a depressed rat would. It self-isolates, it engages in less reward-seeking behavior, right? So it's gonna, it's gonna have changes in its interactions with the other rats. It's gonna have changes in the amount that it's feeding and it's going to have changes in its sleeping and its reproduction. So that's that's our, our model for a depressed rat. And if we actually look at the a neuron from that, that rat's brain, we can see, compared to a healthy rat, that the neuron is actually like emaciated and unhealthy. And that's something that we know from post-mortem studies with human beings, that people who are chronically depressed actually have increased atrophy in their brains, so their brain cells look unhealthier. And we know that, you know, that for me is one of the most compelling reasons why somebody might consider taking an SSRI, let's say, right? Like there's been studies that say, for the person who took Lexapro versus not taking Lexapro, irregardless of what they reported their mood to be, if we look at the state of what their brain cell looks like chronically afterwards, that Lexapro brain has a, has a healthier looking neuron at least. What we know is that if we look at those unhealthy neurons in comparison to the healthy neurons, after a one-time dose of ketamine, we saw a restoration of that unhealthy neuron back to a healthy state. Wow. And it lasted for, for up to seven days is what they can objectively say that that effect lasted for. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as uh, Alex said this, I think I kind of better understood like maybe where the negative experiences that I were having were coming from, because I thought that this was going to be like a really exciting thing. I thought it was going to kind of transcend um, the quotidian, be able to um, rise above 
uh, you know, the the boring and the ordinary. And I think all that really happened was that, like, you know, much. Uh, I feel like I more noticed that I was uh, th- this depressed rat in this cage. Like it just kind of made the bars of life's confinement all the more pronounced. Did you have this kind of experience? Yeah, I think I had similar experiences. And even Lena's pointed out that some of the negative effects that were not truly mentioned in most of the coverage of microdosing was that though it was claimed to be useful in aiding your focus, one of the side effects seemed to be for some people a noticed lack of focus, which is definitely something I experienced a handful of times when doing this. I I, I just wanted to do one thing and, and maybe that was my job. Um, but the only impulse I really felt was to get out of my chair, to walk around, to lie on the ground, to do something, to talk to my girlfriend, to chat with my friends, to do other things. And it was pulling me away from my work. And I think it would have been much more interesting had I been editing with you or working on music or editing a video or doing something more creative than my nine to five making money job. And I think that's where the real discrepancy comes is because it's it's not really what I want to be doing. It's not my fullest self. It's my corporate American cog in the machine self. Is that kind of the, the experience you're describing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny that, um, you know, both I think Linus and Alex had mentioned that like, uh, you know, it's not cheating to to have to use LSE to have these transcendental experiences because um, it's where your life has brought you to this moment. But I, I think the thing is like, I think in some instances, it's, it's not that maybe it was the passiveness of that sentence. It's not that you brought yourself to that moment. It's that life brought yourself to that moment. And then maybe that some people were finding themselves like in, in a rut in this um, just grind. And uh, they weren't using this necessarily uh, for enlightenment, but for escapism. And I think that beyond the negative effects of the drugs, I think maybe more conversations need to be have about the negative reasons for wanting to take it in the first place. It's funny you mentioned escapism because my experience so far has been almost more that it's a realism drug where it takes me out of whatever I'm doing and kind of forces me to be in the moment. And sometimes that moment fucking sucks. And especially in the case of sitting at my desk, like I'm I'm just sitting there, I'm working, not necessarily or in, in any sense of the word, really having a good time. And it's almost like this metaphor that I, I can't escape for some reason. It's as if you're on a plane trying to let the time just pass by watching Cars 2 on the little display on the seat in front of you. And uh, someone's just like, no, you can't watch Cars 2. You have, to en- you have to endure every waking moment of this plane ride. And you can't think of anything else other than being on the plane. And it's like that hyper focus into the moment that is in that moment kind of shitty. And, and and this is what I was referring to. Like, I think I, w- I went into this experience thinking it was going to be maybe a little bit escapist. Like, maybe it was going to make drinking coffee jazzy. It was going to make, like, opening my fridge, like, a, a you know, a, a, I don't know, music would start pouring out. And then there would be a choreographed dance between me and my neighbors. Like, I don't know what I was expecting. But yeah, like you said, it was like the re- revenge of reality. Like, all of a sudden, everything became, ap- it was hyper real. Right. And it was just, you're just confronted with your life in a way that you're not otherwise. And I don't necessarily think that is totally negative because again, like in a way you're, you're really forced to confront where your decisions have brought you. 
And I mean, for that, in that sense, it is a very powerful psychological tool because you are able to kind of use this as a mirror in, in, in some senses. Yeah, see, there I go again, back and forth on it's good, it's bad, I recommend it, I don't recommend it. I mean, uh, it's, it's tough, right? I don't recommend this. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like we touched on this a little bit in our last episode where we learned that microdosing may expand your perception of time or it might make it a more realistic experience of time and while that can be really pleasant during positive experiences during negative experiences you're effectively prolonging your own torture and i think that's kind of what we were experiencing trying to do shitty jobs while microdosing Linus, I think, put it best when he told us in response to our relaying these experiences to him that uh, microdosing is not a button that you press and life becomes wonderful. So um, I think that's a really important takeaway from that. Yeah, super poignant. So another topic that I thought was really interesting was this question of ineffability. And this had been something that I had been thinking of quite a bit since I first read Michael Pollan's book last year in which he described many psychedelic experiences as essentially ineffable, just difficult to put into words. And Linus actually had a really good perspective on this, which I relate for a number of reasons, one of which being that I am colorblind. I actually would say that the mystical experience is not really ineffable. The problem rather is that you can tell nobody uh, something that they don't already know. The standard analogy is, for example, there is a colorblind person which was born colorblind and simply has no concept of color. You can describe them red or green or blue or purple or whatever. You can use all the words you want, but the colors will be ineffable. But between people who both seen, have seen all kinds of colors, right? They can definitely talk about red, green, and blue, and purple. Yeah, that's the limitation of language is, in my opinion, actually that you can only t talk about things that somebody else already knows in a way. At least if you're talking about fundamental qualities of experience. So, I thought that was super interesting and this idea of ineffability seems to come up quite a bit within the psychedelic community uh, as far as like some people demanding that it is insufficient simply to just call it ineffable and then write it off. And I really love the way that Linus summed it up as simply yeah. explaining it is if you don't really get it, you don't really get it which is so is <laughs> so simple uh but that's kind of the nature of psychedelics in itself is it just makes the simple seem magnificent and i'm pretty sure there is this quote and i i think it is um Old MacDonald had a farm. Exactly. Uh, I can't remember who it is that says it, <laughs> but it's something that the true mark of wisdom is being able to see the incredible in the ordinary. And I'm definitely misquoting that. Isn't it extraordinary in the ordinary? Wouldn't that make more sense? Uh, I mean, I guess if you want to try... Or is that too on the nose? Is that like way, just way too hokey? You know, 
little too hokey for me, but I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between wisdom and stupidity is being able to see the big and the small, which is what I say every time I make love. Yeah, this is what it is. The invariable mark of wisdom is to see the miraculous in the common. And that's by ah. Ralph Waldo Emerson. You know, and Emerson was a transcendentalist. Makes sense. So, um, yeah, we uh, we did a little bit of, I did a little bit of reading on him while I was going through this. So I should have known that quote. So uh, thanks for stealing my thunder, Shay. No big deal. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. It was my thunder all along, Ian. <laughs> all right. Um, no, but I, I, I agree with you. I, I really love this. And um, this was something Wittgen, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, Witty. Uh, uh, this was something Wittgenstein was big on when, uh, you know, he talked about, like, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And, and just, like, how, if it's beyond expression, it seems uh, almost impossible. Right. So... Yeah, yeah, beyond experience even. And that's exactly, and I think that's so fucking spot on. Like if you really can't put it into words, then all you're left with is this experience of wonder. But the more you're able to contextualize everything and begin to compartmentalize different aspects of an experience, the more rich and nuanced that experience can become for you. And the less it is just a feeling of mystery and awe and more an appreciation of the complexity of the experience. And I think, you know what it makes me think of, have you, are you familiar with, uh, I believe the pronunciation is koans? No. So I'm going to botch this, but I want to say somewhere in Asia, it was like this mode of thought or these questions that were supposed to really stop and make you think. It, it, maybe the most famous one being like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And for me, like the best way to sum up the psychedelic experience for anybody who hasn't ever experienced is, um, you know, what is it? It's the sound of one hand clapping. I like saw that in like Hey Arnold or something, and it, and it's I've got I've got like a book I've got like uh, a big thick dense book and you're fucking telling me I could have just not read that shit and watched Hey Arnold fuck me that's exactly what I'm telling you and not only that I'm pretty sure in Hey Arnold or whatever show it was they demonstrate it and Ian I know you can see me right now and the listeners cannot but basically Ian this is the sound of one hand clapping you can hear that that's the sound of one hand fapping. All right, Ian. Uh, <laughs> way to make this even less kid-friendly than it already is. <laughs> Tune in to my hit time network TV show, The Fapchler, where I deliver a rose to the porno I want to watch that day. So moving on very quickly <laughs> from the topic at hand, we did have one additional thing that uh, a topic or theme that stuck out from our interviews. And uh, uh, just a quick aside, while we do focus a lot on the interviews we had with Linus, all of the interviews we had, the interview with Alex is absolutely phenomenal in its entirety. It's about an hour and a half to two hours long, and he dives into some incredible topics in some detail that is frankly beyond my understanding. Uh, Linus does as well, uh, though uh, he does seem to have an ability to break it down to... Um, <laughs> Bite-sized concepts. Yeah, everything is... Uh, exactly. Everything's kid-friendly with uh, Linus. Not so much with me, but for with him. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And then finally, Brandon's interview is really fascinating, especially, especially if you have more of a spiritual bent or are interested to hear some really interesting, uh, somewhat bizarre, in my opinion, Brandon, I love you, opinions and beliefs about the nature of things that is definitely an interview that you will want to hear in its entirety all of which are available for our patreon subscribers definitely do that it's absolutely worth it ian and i uh have painstakingly crafted four beautiful tiers the top tier of which uh will offer you personal relationship advice you can just know that ian and i uh will deliver some 
really juicy takes. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Anyway, about enlightenment. <laughs> so Lena's talked about, yeah. uh, had this really interesting perspective about enlightenment, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And in essence, all he really says is that it's effectively optional. Stuff like this can be with many things. Like if today somebody uh, says to me, um, I was the universe, I mean, I, not even the universe, I was existence itself apart from space and time, then I can just say, yeah, sure, of course you are. And um, I'm glad you found out it's, it's nice. But actually, I would even go uh, once further, I would even say it's not even necessary to know this. It's completely optional. I, I, I'm of the opinion that enlightenment is completely optional. There's no need to be enlightened. And this also quest, uh, answers a little bit why uh, this one person who works 30 years on their enlightenment gets beat basically as you framed it, by the 16-year-old who takes drugs on a party. That's because enlightenment is actually not an achievement in a way, because everything that exists is one, and everything is just one expression of the same existence. And if one aspect of existence kind of, in a way, realizes it, it is existence of itself, I mean, that's fine, but why all the rest would not exist if it should not be. And I think what he's saying there is our discovery of something doesn't change the fundamental concept of whatever we discover in itself. I think with the notable exception of maybe particles in quantum physics, uh, which that's which is a, definitely a topic for another time. But effectively, us discovering the, the stone in the meadow has nothing to do with the stone. Whether or not we reach the discovery of the stone doesn't change the fact that the stone is there all along. And, you know, I, I really, really thought a lot about like this idea of enlightenment. You, you know, you probably know like the, uh, the, the Bible's golden rule, um, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. And um, Kant had like a, a can't, Kant, whatever. Um, he had like a version of this, which was, you know, kind of his golden rule where uh, could you live in a world if everybody acted as you do? Like if you uh, were to lie, the thought experiment is to, okay, but if I, what if I lived in a world where everybody lied? Would anything get done? What if I lived in a world where everybody cheated? Uh, would anybody, would, would relationships be able to like function? Um, so that was kind of like your, your standard bearing for morality. Would the world function if everybody acted as I act? And I, for some reason, wanted to apply that to this like idea of enlightenment, where, um, you know, enlightenment kind of implies that like you, there needs to be somebody that you can know better than. And in that sense, it felt kind of like maybe like a, an exclusionary concept. Uh, and I was just wondering, like, is self-actualization, is uh, enlightenment something that we're all supposed to strive for? Because, I mean, if we live in a world where everyone is enlightened, what kind of world is, would that be? I don't know. I, you know, I'm not sure. It would, <laughs> not sure it'd be that different from the world we currently live in. Except maybe people would be more kind. I guess it depends on your definition again of enlightenment. This might be a good place to wrap up our interview section then and uh, dive into our final thoughts and big smart boy questions. Kind of wrap up what it is that we have learned so far in our wonderful camp. Ian, final thoughts. 
Uh, so as we all know, my big smart boy question this week was, um, can microdosing help you attain uh, transcendence and thus self-actualization? And my answer to that is a resounding no. No, it cannot. And I think it was silly for me to think that it could. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I feel like <laughs> when you first posed it to me, I was like, if it's supposed to be perceptual, I'm not sure you're going to reach transcendence. <laughs> and, and I feel like you looked at me with a cocked head and said, what the fuck are you even talking about, you stupid idiot? Have you not read Maslow's <laughs> Hierarchy or something to that effect? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'll have to agree with your conclusion regarding your question. I think I think you're right. I think microdosing... Uh, the intended goals, the stated effects, all of those do not lend themselves easily to the achievement of transcendence, but they may help. They may guide you on your journey, but they in themselves probably don't do the lion's share of the work to get you all the way there. And I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it was still a fun question to think about. So granted, I know that I definitely bit off more than I can chew. I really, really enjoyed thinking about it, and um, I, I do feel like I have something, I don't know, spiritual, psychological to think about and work toward. Um, so besides my impossible question, how was your, you know, little bitty baby one? Yeah, my incredibly scientific research has led me to... The <laughs> Ooh, look at me. I'm Shay. I measure stuff. Uh, I'm being so pompous. Um, so <laughs> what, what was nice about my question, at least in comparison to yours, was that there is... Uh, a scientific process to help lend itself to an answer here. And while I didn't come to a conclusion, I do think that there is strong evidence to support that microdosing does have an effect on the brain. Whether or not that effect is necessarily the stated claims that most microdosers look for is still up for debate. But there does seem to be now hard evidence that shows that there are some effects that are reproducible in laboratory environments that indicate that, uh, is that like a weird run on sentence? Anyway, microdosing has an effect. <laughs> That's what we're learning. Whether or not it's the effect that people are looking for is to be determined. But there does seem to be something there. There may still also be a placebo effect that lends itself to people confirming their own biases uh, they they think that they're, what they're doing is going to make them more focused, and then therefore they are more focused. You know, I think for me at least, I I don't know if I took small enough amounts for me to even consider the placebo question. Like I think I was always aware of it in some way, shape, or form, even if it was just because my teeth were tingling. Right. You know. Yeah, I do think you may have been uh, midi dosing, which is that term that we said we might get back to. And here it is. Welcome to midi dosing time. Uh, and I guess since we've talked about it twice now, midi dosing falls naturally between micro and um, macro and micro dosing. The exact amount of which still is open for interpretation, but it's just, uh, you know, wherever you need it to be between the two. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, the, the top part of the bell curve. And uh, that seems to be from the description that Ian has given me about his own experiences. Most of his doses seem to have fallen maybe on the low end of midi dosing. Yeah, I would, I would, I do want to stress it was on like the lower end of the, of the midi. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, on that note, Shay has done his best to answer mine and uh, my and his questions and I have done my best to answer my own and Shay's questions but I think that there's one answer that really kind of uh, gave us the most to think about and that was Brandon's on the question of enlightenment which we're gonna play ourselves off with so 
Here you go, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. So, Brandon, here we are at the end of our camp. We've been thinking so much about these questions, especially about enlightenment and transcendence and all of these big questions that have plagued philosophers for ages. And we're just trying our best to come up with a simple understanding of it. So I'm wondering, maybe you can help. To you, what what do you think enlightenment is? That is an excellent question. I think... I think it might be death. Yeah. Very special thanks to all of our guests this week. To hear those interviews in their entirety, become a monthly supporter and join our Patreon, where you'll get access to those and tons of other fun goodies. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else, and stay tuned for the next camp, where we join the ranks of meta-podcasts who make podcasts about podcasts. Theme song written by Retrolux. Here at camp, we love supporting music like the song you're hearing now. If you want your music featured on Camp Re-Education, then please go to our website to learn more. And now, enjoy the rest of Coker Reunited by Gory Murgy, and check the episode description for more info on the artist. education sure are something just what will they get into next week
So I was just sitting there covered in milk, begging her to stop. And that's what you had to say? Yeah, dude, you mess with the bull, you get the horns, you fuck with the cow, you get the milk. That's how the cookie crumbles.